I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Much America strays away from the ideals of justice. The goal of America is freedom. Used and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up in the destiny of America. Before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before Jefferson etched across the pages of history the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. Before the beautiful words of the Star-Spangled Banner were written, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored here without wages. They made cotton kings. They built the homes of their masters in the midst of the most humiliating and oppressive conditions. Yet out of a bottomless vitality, they continue to grow and develop. I say that if the inexpressible cruelties of slavery couldn't stop us, the opposition that we now face, including the so-called white backlash, will surely fail. We're going to win our freedom because both the sacred of our nation and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demand. <laughs> Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening to you and welcome to this weekend where we begin acknowledging and honoring the work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. The nation has declared that on Monday it is King Day. And here at Our Common Ground we have declared from his birth day on January 15th, which was yesterday, until the end of the birth, the actual 
federal holiday. We hope that you will engage with the real king. Thank you for being with us uh, tonight at Our Common Ground. We're going to be looking at the insurrection that occurred on January 6th at the nation's Capitol building. And we are saying that our target tonight is the RSVP, Invitations to Insurrection. Tonight, our guest, Makani Temba, who is the Chief Strategist of Higher Ground Strategies Consulting, and Dr. James L. Taylor, who will be joining us later, who is the Chair of the Department of Politics at the University of San Francisco. And we thank you for tuning in. And you can email, text, Twitter, that we are live here at Our Common Ground, the sanctuary where black truth is honored and respected. Um, As we come into this broadcast, which is our second of our uh, 2021 broadcast season, uh, we are reminded to be safe and that we are still in epidemic crisis in this country. And as always, I bring you the statistics that should make us reflect on a number of things, and one is that we have lived for more than four years now under an incompetent, inadequate, and totally disorganized government. As of today, the United States has 302,000 989, I'm sorry, 24 million, 302,989 active cases of people who are infected with COVID-19. There have been 405,254 deaths from this virus. That's 3% of all of the cases of infected persons. And we're going to add into our new information on COVID the distribution of doses of vaccine. There have been distributed 31,161,075 doses distributed between Moderna and Pfizer, 12,279,180 of those doses have been administered to an American. The first dose, which you know that the vaccine has two stages, for those who have received the first dose, it's 10,595,866. And for those who have received the second dose, it is 1,610,524. And that is what we are seeing. 
a couple of news notes before we get into our program this morning, this after, this evening. Uh, the former Michigan governor has been charged in the Flint water poisoning of its citizens. I don't categorize that as good news, but I categorize it as newsworthy. For so long we have been watching what is going on in Flint, Michigan, and now the governor has been charged with not with with criminal negligence um, at a miscellane, mis, miscellaneous level, and there's not a lot of information about what those charges mean, and we'll be bringing those to you as we um, um, gather them. Uh, the Biden-Harris administration. Uh, will be inaugurated on this coming week. And we are certainly watching. Uh, We reported last week about their plan, and we talked about it uh, some, and we will be watching what that means. Uh, A note that is very personal to me is that Dr. Ron Walters, finally, he is one of the great deans of political science in America. He was the chair of the Department of Political Science at Howard University as well as the University of Maryland at his death. And he will be honored by a library that will be established in his hometown in his name. As we come into this broadcast tonight, Washington, D.C. and other state capitals are under armed guard. There's a seven-foot fence in a five-block perimeter around the U.S. Capitol building which means that there is a red zone and a green zone and no one will be able to enter into those zones without proper authority. And we're going to be talking about that with Makani Themba and Dr. James Taylor because it means something in the context of the time that we are living in. There are currently, and you know that I have over the last 25 years have spent so much time in Washington, D.C. It was like my second home. And there are currently 25,000 National Guards in Washington, D.C., the, 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 the capital, right now. Right now. And it's not even inauguration day. Um, so it's going to be really interesting as to how this is all going to play out. But in the context of what happened on January 6th, in the context that law enforcement, 
Capitol Police, which is a federal law enforcement agency, veterans and active members of our military, and even some congressional staff and members of Congress are now under investigation in regard to the violence and the riot and the murder that happened in what they call the pinnacle building, pinnacle of the democracy, pinnacle of the republic. And we're going to be talking about how we got to January 6th. Since 2008, white nationalists have been organizing just as Donald Trump was a response to an African-American president, January 6th, and the insurrection is a product from the Tea Party and the election of Barack Obama. I was very pointed in my opening tonight because even Martin Luther King warned us that a riot does not happen in a vacuum. The organizations of white supremacists all over the nation, the election and support of all white races into the Congress and state legislatures have dog-whistled, called out for support, and we cannot forget the corporate donors, the Koch brothers, Newt Gingrich and his Tea Party. We cannot forget Walmart and Red Lobster and Disney, all part of a list, and that list goes on and on, that funded the resurgence of a visible white supremacist militia and political machine and media. So tonight what we are going to try to do here at Our Common Ground is to fish through the warnings I mean, if you have listened to this program since my return in April, even in 2016, 2017, 2018, because I went back to some of our programs, we were talking here, black truth. And that black truth included that there was a civil war being orchestrated, and that civil war, the foundation was white supremacists. I mean, even if you go back to Charlotte in 2017, you know that part where there were torches and we were being told that white was right and it was confirmed by a sitting president of the United States, they chanted, you will not take our country. They chanted that. 
So tonight we're talking the RSVP invitations that were issued to the insurrectionist. Our first guest, as she joins us, she has been an Our Common Ground voice since 2013. She is the chief strategist at Higher Ground Change Strategies based in Jackson, Mississippi, a social justice innovator and pioneer in the field of change communication and narrative strategy. And she has spent 20 years supporting organizations, coalitions, and philanthropic institutions in developing high-impact change initiatives. Previously, Makani Thimba was served as the founder and executive director of the Praxis Project, a nonprofit organization helping communities use media and policy advocacy to advance health justice. She's a highly sought-after public speaker, and she has published numerous articles and case studies on race, class, media, public advocacy, and public health. And we are so pleased to have her back at our common ground. Sister Makani, welcome back. Greetings. So good to have you. Thank How you are so you? much, sis. I so appreciate the context that you've laid out for us. It's just so on point. And, you know, it's good. It's good to be here. It's good to be alive. <laughs> you know? Yeah, because, um, you know, one of the things that we understand intuitively and innately is that fear is right on the cusp all the time. I love the idea, and I'm sure you've caught it too, that all of the black women Congress people that uh, the media, the mass media is talking to, they all say, well, you know, my girl, Ayana, uh, Ayana says, well, you know, I'm a black woman in America. <laughs> right. Right. They were my favorite. They were my favorite at the mic, I'm for sure. I'm so glad to have you back. It's been way too long. But one of the things I want you to help us put in front of us is where our our government and where our and I have to say this, where our activism failed in somehow finding the capacity to get this, uh, to get us ready, to get this country ready for this. I mean, it's not our responsibility, but we've always been the barometer. How, where was the failure? Well, you know, I'm sure if I would think of it as failure, in some ways what we're seeing is the sort of bubbling up of some of the deep contradictions, and that in many ways is because of our successes, right? So, um, you know, there's been an organizing to, quote, unquote, take back America by the right since the 60s. 
you know, so they have been trying to, like, change the story of the 60s, change the story of what happened, change the story of of how all kinds of people organized and came together. And the other thing they've been really working hard to do is change the story of the Civil War, and they've been working on that for many decades. You know, so instead of it being uh, a, a, the only war in the history of the United States that attempted to overthrow the U.S. government – and actually, attack, you know, attacked and killed folks and all of that to try to take over the government. It's become this sort of parallel American story where you have millions of people who think of the Confederacy as more American than quote, the quote-unquote founders of this country. So that's been a cultural um, sort of organizing and work that's been happening for decades. And And I think what we're seeing, too, is this so many um so many of our folks who are progressive who are, who are for the first time really organizing white people and so when folks say the country's divided i find it really interesting because there's there's also more you know the call them woke or whatever that is white people contending with their conservative family members about these stories that they were formally silent about so then folks are even more angry even feeling more displaced as quote-unquote Americans, feeling like they have to take the country back. So I think in some ways that that what we're seeing is, of course, the organizing investment of the right to sort of, you know, bring these folks together and put them up front to, you know, once again, as, as um, you know, as the right has always done is pull up white folks to be their body, you know, to, to, to be their battering rams, right, literally, and the the people to take the blow um, for, you know, to maintain their systems. But there's also more folks contesting with them around, uh, you know, as white folks. And then the work that we're doing in, in, in the black liberation movement to really bring people to an understanding, which is creating all kinds of contradictions, internal contradictions among folks to be like, there are so many people now who have a better understanding of what it's like to be black in America than ever before. So I wouldn't say it's a failure as much as it's saying that we are creating contradictions, which is part of what organizing does. Um, we're still building power to be able to make the change. But, um, but what we're seeing in many ways is about that hard work that folks have been putting in for so long on our side and also the work of these systems, because it's not just activists versus activists, but it's also these larger systems like the right going after ethnic studies, the right going after all these things where people would learn the history to help them understand, like, what was wrong with the Confederacy and things like that. So I think, so I think we're in a place of, it's almost like generative mess, right? Like, you know, that I, that I think we have a lot to, you know, that there's, that we, that, in, like I said, in many ways, it's about the good work, the hard work, and and the ways in which um, even the news media is having to deal with, um, you know, with our frame, with the story that we're telling in ways that they never did before. Well, I I I think uh, your take on it is correct, but. Let me, you know, I'm I'm sitting here, and this is my 34th year doing Black Truth, mm-hmm. and I keep saying that because 
it, it's significant and critical to me because I'm talking about the same stuff that that I was talking about in my first year of broadcasting. Right. Um, and so I'm wondering, and my question really is to the extent to which we have been able to engage with our own people in regard to what black liberation struggle is really all about, which is why my hashtag is trust your struggle. So help me out here, Makani, because I've been doing this work since I was 16 years old. (laughs) No, and I'm one of those people too. I'm one of those people too. I mean, um, I, my very first, sort of thing to do as an activist was integrating uh, a school, right? Like, like, yeah. like some of us, you know? And, um, and so it's like, it, it, in some ways it can feel like it's the same thing, but you know, there's something my great grandfather who was Garveyite and an organizer used to always say to me, and I hold it so close. And that is that our work is like a spiral stair it looks like we're in the same place, but if we look back, we realize we're up higher than we thought we were. And, yeah, and I feel yeah. like that's where we are right now, that there are so many things that we do better. Uh, there's so many people that we're reaching. There's so many folks who identify with this movement in, at, at, a, at a time and in size that we haven't seen since the 60s. I mean, this movement has become very, very large in so many ways. And then also how smart we are about, you know, forcing, and it's not really reparations for, you know, in the true sense of the word, but folks are like, mm-hmm. you know, if you say you're about about this freedom, then you need to invest in our institutions, right? And folks have been super smart about it and the way they've been building and building all over the country and strengthening the infrastructure. This is why these folks are afraid. This is why instead of Republicans talking about their case for impeachment, which of course is very, or case against impeachment, which of course is very weak, they spent the whole time talking about movement for black lives and black lives matter, right? Because that's how fierce this movement has become. And so, you know, and I think it's important for us because we do we do have this thing like if we haven't won the whole thing, that meant we failed. And and I think part of us has to step back and look like if we say this is a protracted struggle, which I'm actually trying to not say that too much because I do think thoughts are things. I'm trying to move into like we're in a movement. We're about to get free. <laughs> like like we're 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 making these choices. And I I live in Jackson, Mississippi, which is a place that, you know, a lot of folks sort of wrote off and thought nothing was going to happen here because it was Mississippi. But it's also a hotbed of movement, a hotbed of innovation and ideas and black genius. Um that I think is it's becoming a model for many people from all over to come see. So I, I feel yeah. like there's ways we don't necessarily see our progress because uh, this, the lens we're using is, was well, everybody, are we all all free as opposed to are we freer than we were? 
you know, what do we have to show for it? And I think a lot. That said, I think we also have to recognize how the right has organized, and they already had the systems, the structures, the many of the policies on their side because this is their system. With all the talk, you know, with them, the, the you know, Congress people with the censored written across their masks and all this other kind of madness, this is their system. You know, they don't have to take anything back. It's theirs, you know. And and so mm-hmm. it's so interesting to watch, you know, and even the news media like people, or you know, depending on what channel you watch, you know, people are like, well, you know, these were great people. These were most of the people were peaceful, and it's like even if they were all peaceful, even if they didn't breach the Capitol, what they were there mm-hmm. to say and what they've been doing has been violent even before that. You know, when you surround the Wayne County, you know, elections process, you know, and a black woman who's the head of it has to walk outside of her building by herself, no support, no police, to tell the, the screaming mobs outside that they need to stop rocking on the glass so they can count the votes because they're not caring about all the Michigan votes. They're only caring about the black votes. Right? They, were, they were engaged in violence and terrorism around the black vote, and that march, even if they never breached the Capitol, was a show mm-hmm. of domestic terrorism against the black vote. So, so for me, it's like it's not it, – it, before you even get to the so-called – Violence, you know, it was only violent because it was against that capital. But all those other times that folks who had to vote in fear or get word or like have a plan and 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 navigate the obstacles of this so-called democracy, um, no one was really well. Not no one. We were talking about it, but but most of the news media was not talking about the kind of everyday violence that we as communities face, black communities, brown communities um, face in order to just simply cast our ballot. So I think if you reflect on the entire context, uh, you know, it's sort of like, it's like how fast are you running? How fast are you running with the wind blowing hard? How fast are you running in the mud, right? Now there's a hurricane. But yet we still are making progress. To me, that is Amazing, and yes, we have more to do, and yes, we need to hold accountable the folks who are complicit in all the ways, like the companies you've named, you know, the the folks you've named, and even in some ways how some of the liberal machinery, by acting like free speech, like this is so-called free speech, or, you know, or, or worrying about, like, like if they're going to alienate these these folks and not really taking a clear side or, you know, like all of these things that where it's very clear, it's like if you're about justice, there's really one side, right? <laughs> but it's like mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. of this sort of confusion and and sort of uh, backpedaling uh, that folks are engaged around because because we have a country that centers white power. That's why we have electoral college. That's why we have a Senate. States' rights is just a synonym for white power. And and so it's it, as opposed to a democracy where it's like one vote, one person, right? So I think this is the context that all of this is swirling in. These folks have been going to school, watching the news, all these mainstream systems that have been feeding this story, and they are waving the flags and, and taking on the issues and, and engaging in what they engaged in. I mean, that RSVP went out 
way before even 2016, right? It's been yeah. it's yeah. been out for a while, and they've been organizing yeah. for a while. And so here we are, and, and, and a lot of the things that we tried to say as black people, like, if you eliminate ethnic studies, you eliminate the, the opportunity for people to learn the truth about this country and, and come to some place of reconciliation. If you eliminate media and don't support media that's independent and tells the truth about this country, then you're going to have a bunch of people who are just sheep. It's like if you eliminate the opportunity to teach in public schools or, the, or if you don't look at what's happening in these churches – where, you know, you have the Methodist Church, for example, highly contested folks fighting over doctrine, which is really fighting over how if this is going to be a racist church or a progressive church. And that's been going on for decades. And so folks are not paying attention to all of these dynamics and all of these places in which this organizing is happening, or even Billy Graham's and other folks' efforts to say that you're not really Christian if you're about social justice, and all you need to be worried about is whether or not you go to heaven, and that's a very narrow, narrow, you know, definition. So all of these things have been swirling for a while, and 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 some of us have not paid as close attention to it. And then, and I think of always with Gil Scott Heron, Said and beg your part. We beg your pardon. And he said, "America is, you know, the the leader in being shocked, but not the leader in deciphering the cause of those shocks." Hmm. Hmm. I'm. 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 Pleased that you brought up um, uh, Gil Scott Herring because. His greatest works came in a time where there was reverence, where there was race consciousness about black liberation. And in the work that you do at Higher Ground Change Strategies, I'm wondering if there are things that we can do that can capture the vision or the capacity for vision with uh, a younger generation? Well, I take my lead from them. I have to say, I mean, I am so impressed, and I feel so privileged to work with folks. I mean, and and I know for, for me, as a person who came out of, I worked for SCLC, I, you know, I, I did have done a lot of work over the years that um, I have, I'm honored to have been a part of movement for black lives, you know, for the years that I have been, you know, pretty much since the beginning. Um, I'm, I'm honored by the, the, the deep commitment to black folks. I mean, these, these, Mm -hmm. these guys put their lives on the line and they're so Mm -hmm. thoughtful. There's the breathe act, which I think is a really important piece of legislation that lays out, in a thoughtful way um, of addressing the demands to reorient funds into our communities for our healing versus the amount of money that gets laid out for the police. And, you know, a lot of people looked at those at folks and in protest and said, well, you know, I don't even understand. Uh, it was really, you know, it was really more older folks who were like, I don't really understand what they're talking about. And it's like, but I'm like, and I would tell my friends to look closer, think about it. Imagine, if 
if our communities were not occupied, you know, by these forces, and that money went into mental health. Think about how many mamas are calling the police because they have nobody else to call when their children are having, psych- you know, psychotic breaks. Like there's all of these things that we're living every day that, that, that some of our younger comrades are on the front lines fighting for our whole community and their reverence, their joy, their, um, their commitment to everyone, to bringing everyone, mm-hmm. thinking mm-hmm. about the schools. I, I find that, and, they, and there's so much, like when the Black National Congress happened last summer, I thought it was so beautiful how they brought together so many people who were part of the original Gary Convention. That's where yeah, they drew their yeah. inspiration. It was beautiful. Right? So it was beautiful. I, it was beautiful. So I want to acknowledge yeah. them and, and yeah. say that, that I feel like they are inspiring us. And I feel like what we can do is, you know, there's so many tools right now on the move. M4BL is literally .org is the site M, and then for the number BL, like, um, you know, Movement for Black Lives. Uh, that site has a lot of things that people can do right now. In fact, there's a push right now called Forward Together um, that, um, I, I, you know, for folks who are committed and want to be involved in, in the work and, and want to do things locally where they are, to, to please check that out because there is something for all of us to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what struck me uh, about the tenure of um, Trumpism over the last four years, it just kept striking me and striking me, is the idea that people were willing to push the boundaries, uh, go to the rallies, talk non absolute nonsense that they didn't even understand and be the Yahoo the king and queens of Yahoo. And I was thinking to myself, Makani, uh where where are our Yahoos? Everything we you know, everything we need dis, you know, in in spite of all the uh, whatever boundaries that we have. I mean, I was I was part of the generation and um where you did what you thought you needed to do. Um yeah. and and our and know. kids are still doing that. I mean people are still doing exactly that. Um mm-hmm. and I think in even deeper and, and more savvy way. Because not only are folks in the streets, they're also in the suites, they're also on Capitol Hill. Um, they're thinking about reparations in new ways, and I, you want to shout out, I mean, there's some folks that are doing amazing work organizing, like, the Catholic Church to, to like, donate their land to black land trusts. And, I mean, there's, like, a level of thinking that folks are engaged in right now that is the sum total of what we did plus that mm-hmm. next level, that, that generations are supposed to, you know, engage in. And some of these mm-hmm. folks are are, you know, in their 40s and 30s, and some of these folks are teenagers who are coming up with, um, I think, some really important interventions. And one of the things I also remember about back in the day is not everybody was down. I mean, I'm I'm a preacher's kid and a preacher's grandkid. And, you know, my I remember coming to see my grandmother with my little afro and everything ready. And, you know, she and my grandmother was a – my grandmother was a big woman, okay? She was a big, she was short, but she was, she was a big chick, okay? She got down on her knees to 
to pray for my hair, like for Jesus to come bring the straightening comb. <laughs> to, you know what I'm saying? Like not everybody was down at first, yeah, right? And yeah. so, and and so we and we're in the same kind of thing. Now the one the thing that we had different was that because our movement, it's not that our movement was new, but it was it was novel for a lot of folks. So it got a lot more press. But see, what they figured out is that if they starve us with the press, they starve us of people knowing how powerful we are. So, you know, now we have we have people like you who are so grateful, like who are amplifying the message, who are telling folks the stories. But, you know, it's like a struggle. And it's to to get the stories told in a way that we had full we had sort of the full range of access because we were such news. And now, you know, Movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, many of the other organizations, even the NAACP, I want to say, who's been part of the front lines, especially here in Mississippi, um, and and a number, you know, a number of those what people would consider old line groups have rebooted with younger leadership. You know, shout out to Derek Johnson, shout out to, you know, that are – Coming with it, and 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 our allies, and are showing up um, in the ways that these institutions did not show up for us in the '60s, and you know, in in, in terms of the later '60s, with the more you know, sort of more, yeah. um, I would say, more rebellious and and more sort of direct confrontational ways in which we were, many of us were moving. And so I I really see us in a place where we are blending and learning and building on the lessons of the past, leveraging the technology of the present, dreaming about the future. This I feel so grateful to be alive right now as an as an organizer and activist. Wow. Well, we're 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 grateful to have you with us. We're gonna. Um, switch off uh, and bring in Dr. James Taylor. And for those of you who are listening, uh, Dr. Taylor, Professor James Lance Taylor, is the chair of the Department of Politics at the University of San Francisco. And if you have been with Our Common Ground, you know that he is our political uh, uh, consultant and advocate. And uh, he is the author of the book Black Nationalism in the United States from Malcolm X to Barack Obama. And we are so pleased to have him, and we're going to be bringing him right after this. Everybody loves King because King is an honest man. If you disagree with his tactics, if you disagree with his strategy, you must respect the man whose actions conform to his words. And whether you liked him or not, he said nonviolence, he was in the front line, Shaq. He said nonviolence, he was the first to go to jail. He said nonviolence, he was the first to be whooped. Therefore, you have to respect this man if you don't like him. I know many said, well, I ain't going for that nonviolence stuff. I ain't into that. What you doing? Nothing. Shut up. That was Kwame Touré on Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. James Taylor, thank you for joining us here tonight with Makani Simba. Thank you so Good much to have uh, you for back, having brother. me. Thank you so much for having Welcome. me on our coming. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. 
Yes, I was just saying thank you uh, for having me back on our common ground, and I, I was just enjoying listening uh, to Makani uh, Thimba as she as she spoke, and uh, I just I was sitting there taking notes, um, <laughs> and uh, I really appreciate her perspective, um, her ecumenical perspective of of the movements, of the movement of young people, um, of the strategies of, of change that is actually happening, reminding us that we are actually um, at the top of the. Um, spiral stairs and not at the bottom, um, like we, like so many people think, and, and, I, and I think it's really important. Uh, Faraisha Day, some years ago, uh, the journalist wrote a, a book called "Don't Believe the Hype," and she tried to isolate some statistical data to show that so much of the bad news about our community, our young people, um, a lot of it is isolated and exaggerated, and and not put in a full a fuller context, or not compared to other groups, for example, that may have similar patterns. Uh, in the U.S. or abroad, say, compare black kids in America to kids in South Africa or Brazil, where you have these sort of racial um, societies that, you know, give them a certain kind of um, course or path that they are sort of bound to if they aren't exceptional, right? So, um, and, and how you would compare, you know, the African-American response here to racism to to the responses of young people in other places so that we could you know, draw and generalize about, you know, what, what can we learn from young people under, uh, under repressive or oppressive conditions and, and not just, you know, in other words, if, if, if their pants are sagging in Brazil too uh, and also in South Africa, um, then what does that mean, you know, that, that this is a, a, a manifestation of some deeper sociological or social uh, deprivation or reality that people are experiencing? So... And I love her, you know, telling us, you know, to remember, you know, to sort of tap into the movements of the past and talking about the technology of it, because to me that that is the main thing we should be doing. Our movements, our current movements should be informed, at least the leaders of movements. If not, the, the rank and file may not be able to. Hopefully they can be through education, but certainly the leaders should know the history of Reconstruction. Garveyism, um, the interwar mm -hmm. years, the black migration, mm -hmm. um, how it manifested differently on the West Coast and why black politics on the West Coast are different than down south or up in the Northeast, right, that reflect the black movement and black migration. Black people are in a migration right now, and nobody else talks about it. It's, stun it's stunning to me that black people have been in movement since 1970, in every city in America, they're going back south. And Atlanta and Georgia turned blue because black folk have moved back there. South Carolina, Jamie Harrison, um, <coughs> North Carolina, <coughs> excuse me, North Carolina. Um, you know, I'm talking only politics. I'm not talking about social movements in, in this specific reference. You, you see um, a, a real reason for hope. I've been trying to tell people. I got interviewed yesterday by a journalist who was talking about the calamity of, of Washington, D.C., and whether or not there's any signs of hope. And I'm like, black people are the hope of America. Black people are, as, as, a, as a group, they have mobilized politically since 2007, and they have not stopped. And they have effectively been the most important voting bloc in America nationally and locally, and nobody even comes close in, in second. 
We keep hearing black women, more power to it. I'm all for it because I know the data. But black men are right number two behind them in everything from Clinton and beating Trump by 2.7 million, beating Trump by 8 million in 2018 midterms, beating Trump by 7.5 million last month. Black people were the essential voters, 20 million votes that they've used to defeat the Republicans with. And, of course, because of the machinations and the manipulations and the systems that um, Sister McConnie talked about, electoral college and stuff like that, the minority party Republicans have no other way in terms of popular appeal to stay relevant. So I think we as a people and those who um, are in social distress because of COVID and just because this country is falling apart – the 1619 Project tried to tell this country, we are the democracy in it. We, we are the hope in it. We are the people that still believe in America. As recently as 2019, a poll showed that black Americans still believe in the possibility of America, when many white Americans have given up hope on America. And the tragedy of that is these are not independent responses. The white response is directly uh, exponential to the, black, the perception of black improvement, black advancement. And that's, that's where it's hard to work with, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, alliances and coalitions, is, is, is that you have this dynamic here where um, – even, Corn, uh, even Henry Louis Gates, who is no radical, said that white folks saw a black family in the White House and have lost their minds, right? And, and I don't, I've never really given that that much credibility, you know, that the Obamas somehow caused this, you know, this, 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 um, this, this nervous breakdown across the country. But, but maybe, maybe it has. Whatever, it, well, whatever well, the case is, I think the voting, I think the way black people have been mobilized, because they have been protecting themselves, both affirmatively for policies, but also in some instances like in Alabama with Roy, Roy Moore, uh, with, Roy, with, uh, with Doug Jones, black voters supported Doug Jones because Roy Moore was an existential threat. So they protected themselves. And I think we don't talk enough about black people engaging in defensive voting protecting themselves against ominous or threatening, you know, um, uh, po- politicians. And let, so, let, let, go ahead. Let's try, let, let's try to do this. I'm going to bring McConney in, in, into this discussion because we do have uh, social movement and political movement um, with us, uh, experts with us tonight, to, to talk about how uh, this insurrection occurred without and the organizing and the and the and the uprising of these factors uh, occurred without the oversight of our government. What happened with the FBI? What happened with the federal police? Uh, the idea that there is a false equivalency going on in the discourse of leadership in this country um, be, about what the the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matters movement protests over the summer and somehow equating that to what has happened with the organizing that resulted in the thousands of people who showed up at the Capitol building and attacked and breached 
uh, the building. Makani, why don't we start out um, with you, maybe some sort of response to what Dr. Taylor has presented, and, and let's get this uh, social movement and 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 racist movement and political stuff. Let, let's talk about this because there is no doubt that as black people, we know Tulsa, we know Rosewood, we know Oklahoma City, we know uh, the Sticks in Palm Beach County, Florida. We know that in every place where black people have have lived and prospered, that they that they have been attacked by mobs. We know that lynching is the Rubicon of the white supremacist movement in the history of this country. So let, let, let's, let's bring this, try to bring this together. Makani? Well, first I have to um, just very much appreciate Dr. Taylor and um, for your um, insightful remarks, and, and thank you. Thank you so much. I was just ready to kick back because I was like, well, you know, I've been talking, so <laughs> I was ready to <laughs> To hear as much as possible, but I'll just say this, um, I think, sort of briefly, um, and that is that this this move is, you know, you think about this movement, um, these folks that have been organized, I think that there's definitely a way in which the right has um, used the election of Obama, and the right is not a monolith, I want to be clear, because right. there was definitely even tendencies of the right uh, that supported Obama, right? right. <laughs> so, uh, so I want to be clear about that. But, but that they have they have used this idea of you know it's like black people in the very house that you hold sacred. Like it's sort of like almost like the metaphors are almost like that of rape, or you know of like these folks in this place that they're not supposed to be. And, and if you remember the the kind of big to do they made over blocking. President Obama every every year, whoever's president of the United States does a speech for around the first day of school that gave children an opportunity to be like, here's the president, have a great year, all of these things, and they were like, we don't want him in our house. This is, you know, it's like all of the, it was like it was almost like some stuff from the script of Birth of a Nation, right? It was just like, really, this is the president though, um, and and so you know this this idea of fomenting fear and using black people, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Movement for Black Lives or particular individuals or so-called convicts or, you know, that, that that's, a, that's kind of a standard playbook, as we all know, to whip up fear. And I agree with Dr. Taylor because Republicans know that the only way for them to hold power is to continue to subjugate the majority, you know, so they can rule, just like South Africa, right, for so many years, just like, right. you know, this is, this, is a, this is a page book out of the colonizer playbook. So, so you saw, and you saw people sort of like, well, let's figure out what to do. That's what the driver's license rules were about. That's what the big purge, Mississippi did a purge of, of folks off the voter rolls this, uh, right before the election here, that was equivalent to half of the voters on the roll. Half. 
right? Uh, you know, it can't be that many people died, you know, or left, right? So it's like they have been pulling out everything. And so this organizing and whipping up this mob mentality, I think, is just part of a range of tactics and um, to, to sort of distract us, to, to focus, to create fear. And, you know, and, and, and you think ex- almost exactly 100 years ago, Woodrow Wilson had the Klan in the White House, right? They were having dinner, you know, state's dinner in honor, and they were, and they were celebrating the, you know, the, the, the release of the film Birth of a Nation, and black people were out in D.C. in one of the largest marches that has been black, you know, sort of black protests in the history of the country to protest that film. And so it's in some ways it's almost it's not really like full circle, but it's also like thinking about like what these folks are, what what these the metaphor and the rhetoric and the and the sort of buttons that are being pushed for these folks is is basically the same conversation that Woodrow Wilson was having with the Klan the Klan in the White House's official business and that is that the only way to hold this country you know to have it to be the country that they want is through our subjugation but what's clear is we're not having it and what's better is is that there are our white allies who are actually instead of being neutral about it as folks have been for for so long um that there are more and more folks who are stepping into a place of allyship and engagement Dr. Taylor I know you have a response Well no I I would just add, add you know I I've made a lot of comparison between Woodrow Wilson and Donald Trump because I think that's the uh, other than someone like a Patrick Buchanan uh, in terms of someone who actually had governmental power and uh, and also was a, a, a an overt racist, Woodrow Wilson would be the case, right, where he segregates the federal facilities uh, where they had not been segregated, you know, before, between him and Lincoln is 50 years, and there had been no segregation in the federal facilities. And then Wilson, you know, the Virginian, um, you know, Princeton University, political science professor, president of the American Political Science Association, um, uh, was a, a diehard racist uh, to his core, and cel- you know celebrated um, the you know the birth of a nation with the Supreme Court. We know we we know that story. Um, what's really uh, I, I, what I didn't know was that there was this massive black protest. So I'm glad uh, Sister McConney brought that out because I was not aware that there was a black a massive black reaction. I just have never heard anybody clarify that before. So I'm glad she brought that into the into this discussion. Um, um, but I think for the right. You know, part of what I think we're experiencing is this, what one scholar called the cycles of American history, um, and um, Samuel P. Huntington, and he breaks down the reality of 30-year periods reflect the full generation. He says the first 15 years, the generation that arises, let's say it's um, hip-hop, they look back 15 years and spend their time criticizing the, the previous generation. And then the next 15 years, they largely focus on their own affirmative, you know, trying to implement their own affirmative uh, ideas as they come into maturity and power. So that 
30-year cycle represents the maturation of a generation. So Andrew Jackson and his generation was trying to replicate what their parents and grandparents had done with the American Revolution, right? And every generation, every 30 years or so, we see these very same patterns. The the, the real phenomenon right now is we're seeing a century-long pattern because we were in the midst of a pandemic in 1918 uh, with a racist president, Woodrow Wilson, who actually got the Spanish flu like Donald Trump got COVID. And Woodrow Wilson actually got um, the Spanish flu and had a stroke four months, I think it was four months later, if I'm not mistaken, and died two years later. Uh, so Woodrow Wilson, you know, Trump is not even the first president to, to be stricken by a pandemic. That's how eerie now is to the 19 teens where you had 1919 if you google it you'll see the word you know red summer will come up or if you put up the, the phrase if you search the, red, the the phrase red summer the year 1919 comes up because of all the black blood mainly that was spilt as a result of these racial pogroms p o g r o m s these racial pogroms that were carried out against black people and so these are cycles and and trump was what he was born in 46 he was about 22 when King was was dead, so he's one of the white people who was celebrating the death of Martin Luther King and and and, and you know given you know standing ovation and celebrating it. So we're we're dealing with somewhere between Ronald Reagan and Trump is a full cycle, and we're dealing with what these young, with these people who are out in Washington D.C. If you compare the just facially, just superficially, compare the crowd you saw in Washington, D.C. to the crowd in Kenosha or Portland or wherever Black Lives Matter and the Movement for Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd Movement mobilized, you'll see the demographics, even those whites that were a part of the black movement, were much younger, much younger compared to what you saw in this uh, reaction, this insurrection. And so this insurrection is about failure. It's about Paradise is lost. It's about the fact that these people are middle-aged, and the American dream for them died 30 years ago. And they were sold this dream that, you know, middle-class them, uh, you know, suburbia, two cars, a wife, a husband, a partner, I guess I should say now, a white picket fence and a dog and two kids, right? That dream has been dead for decades, and America is still selling it. And so these people bought it and it's not here and they are now in their 50s and this is the same group miss graham who is devastated by uh, 130 people dying every day by the opioid crisis that's who that's who so the same people that are raging the same people that are maga are the same people that are part of the uh, the opioid crisis and the deep thing is they are in deep crisis white people in america are in deep distress deep i'm talking about they are the most incarcerated white people on the planet they are the most shot by their state in the plant on the in the planet. They have the shortest life expectancy compared to other whites in, on the planet. About fifteen years, about twelve years ago, data came out that said that the black American life expectancy compared to white in America had closed closest as it had ever been, and no one reacted to that. It wasn't so much Ms. Graham suggesting that things were getting better for us per se, as much as it was getting worse for them. And, and, and I think it's important that we tell them that this system is killing them too, because if we only tell them what it's doing to us, Jennifer Eberhardt is a professor out at Stanford who's demonstrated the more you show white people 
choose of black suffering images, subconscious images to tap subconscious biases through black people in handcuffs, black people behind bars, black people in orange uniforms. And they only tested this, uh, Jennifer Eberhardt only tested this against white liberals in New York and in San Francisco, not the rest of America. And the re- response was counterintuitive. Her study found that white liberals in New York and in San Francisco wanted more black suffering, not less. It was a not-in-my-backyard syndrome. So I don't think it – I think I think we've told white people and others, that, you know, of, of our suffering. And, and as Sister uh, McConaughey has, you know, made clear, some of them are being responsive in ways that they never have been. I'm working with Dr. Clarence Jones, who was the man who smuggled the Birmingham letter out of the Birmingham jail for Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King's ter- attorney, who just turned uh, 90 uh, yesterday. Um, and, and he says – that, you know, it's stunning to him that he's seeing things that he's seen before and thought he would never see before, but he's also recognized that he's one of those things is the mobilization of whites in mass in ways that you've never seen before. You look at uh, Ava DuVernay's movie, um, uh, uh, Selma, you'll see in the first march is a bunch of black folk and two white people, the second march is a bunch of black folk and five white people, you know, and, and, and yet it was, it was perceived as integrated. It was nothing like what happened with George Floyd in the George Floyd movement. No march that King organized uh, related to, you know, obstacles that black people were facing. I'm not talking about the March on Washington. I'm talking about the local struggles was as integrated as what happened this past summer with the, the George Floyd movement. So there is a definitely an awakening, and there is definite change. In San Francisco, I'm a part of several black mobile organizations. I've been in San Francisco for 20 years, Ms. Graham. The black community in San Francisco has been very divided for 30, 40, 50 years, and now that community is completely mobilized, united behind London Breed, and, and they, are, they just got, I think, $150 million redistributed into the black community that's going to be parsed out in three different payments. And two studies I wrote were part of informing Mayor Breed of certain you know, uh, particulars in, in, that, that affect our community. So I think we who are alive right now have to understand that we are a part of a cycle. This is a part of a race cycle. Reagan may be the beginning of it. This is part of the end of it. Part of me explaining to who those people were in, in terms of the demographics and where they are uh, overall is th- those are the Reagan Democrats. And the Reagan part of them is the racist part, and the Democrat part of them is the part that voted for Obama, 7 million of them. And that's who uh, both parties, unfortunately, continue to artificially elevate as the most important voting bloc. When Stacey Abrams has demonstrated, all you have to do is get people who never vote. The never voter is more important than the racist voter, but both parties continue to appeal to the racist voter or the least white, uh, the least racist white voter that they can by trying not to offend them. When Stacey yeah. Abrams shows the game, the game plan for the future of black politics in America, one is Southern, is South. That's number one. Black politics in the future is South because, one, we're moving. The last three generations of black folk since 1970 have moved back South, and the black population is going from 45 million to 75 million in the next 40 years. So, so there's a lot happening amongst us, and I, and I, I agree with uh, Sister McConaughey's optimism because we're doing it. We, we just saved democracy. Yeah. For the world, twice. We did it in the election, in the, in the primary, by sustaining Joe Biden, who nobody else sustained, and then we saved it outright in the national election, not just for us and for our children, 
but for white people, for Native Americans, for Asians, for Latinos and others, and for this entire planet, we pushed back against the right-wing racist turn globally, globally. In the same way that Wilson inspired Hitler, let me say this, the same way that Wilson inspired Hitler, Trump is inspiring the modern fascists globally. See, too many people read Hitler into America. That's backwards. America inspired Hitler. The Jim Crow inspired the Nuremberg Laws. There's nothing that America took from Hitler. Hitler took from America. The Nazis borrowed from here. So when you look at black people operating in this particular context, demonstrating through electoral politics, which is my focus, um, you see them committed to democracy, and not just for themselves, but for the world. And what will happen in, 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 about, you know, in, a, in a few months is everyone will forget and, and act like they did not see what they saw in this powerful demonstration yeah. of Af- African-American organizing and voting. If you just joined us uh, tonight, we're talking about the invitations to insurrection and how on January 6th, white supremacists, and all the alt right world responded with an RSVP. Our guests are Makani Temba, who is the chief strategist at Higher Ground Strategies, and Dr. James Taylor, who is the chair of the Department of Politics at the University of San Francisco. Makani, I want to get your response, and I want to get you and Dr. Taylor into a discussion about change because that is your expertise looking at how we change when we come back from this break i want to talk about accountability uh we have congress people congress staff law enforcement who are now under investigation for aiding and abetting this attack. For those of you who are just joining us, thank you for joining us. You're listening to Our Common Ground. We'll be right back. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. It's amazing how people can come together by spending time apart. 
Quest Diagnostics thanks you for doing your part to stop the spread of the coronavirus through social distancing and proper hygiene. At Quest, we're doing our part by establishing COVID-19 lab testing capabilities across the country to better serve our communities and healthcare providers. If you suspect you have COVID-19, talk to a healthcare provider and let's keep doing our part so we can all come back together stronger than ever. If Republicans are playing cutthroat politics, why are the Democrats playing that? And why can't they be on the offensive? And that, that's the first. Here's the second charge. You've got the Republicans beating this old message of debt. You got Mitt Romney standing in front of a dead clock now. And that will be the narrative. And the Democrats, you don't see this coming? You don't see this narrative coming as they force another debt fight. As they The best of political talkback. Common sense. Right from the concrete. Urban, progressive, politics. 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 Friday night at TruthWorks Network. 10 p.m., Alpha drills down deep the lies, the conspiracies in politics. It's just damn politics. The Alpha Show. Much America strays away from the ideals of justice. The goal of America is freedom. Used and stormed though we may be, our destiny is tied up in the destiny of America. Before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before Jefferson etched across the pages of history the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. Before the beautiful words of the Star-Spangled Banner were written, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored here without wages. They made cotton kings. They built the homes of their masters in the midst of the most humiliating and oppressive conditions. Yet out of a bottomless vitality, they continue to grow and develop. I say that if the inexpressible cruelties of slavery couldn't stop us, the opposition that we now face, including the so-called white backlash, will surely fail. We're going to win our freedom because both the sacred of our nation and the eternal will of the almighty God are embodied in our echoing demand. And now back to Our Common Ground. And we thank you for being here at Our Common Ground on this Martin Luther King weekend. And the nation, the black nation, and other people will come together with us on Monday to celebrate the federal holiday it's really interesting, and I want to talk to somebody about it because all this 
uh, not a day off, a day for work, Martin Luther King, blah, blah, blah. Nobody's working on George Washington's birthday or whoever else's birthday we celebrate. And we need to talk about that and how it all gets transformed. But we hope that you will celebrate the real king. And uh, we give homage to his work, to the spirit he left with us in this country that we can use at this time. Our guest tonight, Makani Timba, who is the chief strategist of Higher Ground Strategies in Jackson, Mississippi, and Dr. James Taylor, the chair of the Department of Politics at University of San Francisco, if you are just joining us. And don't forget, next week, we are going to go back, and Jennifer Taub uh, has sent me flowers and all kinds of things and an apology for sleeping through our show last night when she was supposed to be a guest. She's the author of Big Dirty Money, and she'll be with us next Saturday night at 10 p.m. to talk about whiteness and white-collar crime and the people who bring whiteness to our justice system. And I'm really glad that uh, we were able to reschedule that. And on January 31st, we're going to be bringing in Dr. Hassan Johnson to talk about his new National Black Men's Institute. He's been doing a lot of work with, you know who my bromance is, Dr. Tommy Curry. And we're going to be talking to him about his work. So every Saturday night, get yourself a drink, make some little appetizer things, and and join us at 10 o'clock. Because at 10 o'clock, uh, we do some some serious talk. Also, don't forget the Alpha Show on Friday nights at TruthWorks Network, which is our sister network. At 10 p.m., Alpha brings it hard, and he brings it right. Common sense politics for all of us. So those are the things that we need to be thinking about. And Dr. Taylor and Makani Temba, thank you so much for being with us uh, here. This is what I want to hear from, uh, to hear you kind of analyze this whole issue of accountability and who aided and abetted. And the other issue is that Trump and Trumpism is not going away. And while we have all of this law enforcement presence in uh, the capital city uh, for next week, the inauguration, I'm worried more about what's going to happen between tonight and then and after that when the National Guard goes away and uh, we we saw the Capitol Police inability to handle the kind of volume of rioters um, at the Capitol on January 6th. What say you, Makani? Well, I think... I mean, there's so much there, right? <laughs> so yeah, I one, know. <laughs> I, I feel like it. I love it. I love it. Um, 
when you know when when I think back on all the demonstrations I've been involved in, and in D.C., um, you know this is where and the the observations that literally millions of Black folks made watching the events, and that is they did not handle this like they would handle a regular protest, even a nonviolent protest. There are there are folks who were involved in the in the protests this summer. Who I mean, there have been 14,000 arrests for the protests over the summer, almost all of which were for nonviolent protests in which they had insurrection, uh, you know, charges and all kinds of felony charges thrown at them, you know, for nonviolent protests. We're not even talking about where Target got burned down or anything like that, right? We're talking about nonviolent protests where folks were arrested, they were charged. Uh, and, and, and many of those folks are still in the middle of fighting those cases. Uh, so, so I think it's important to acknowledge that when this system decides that it's important to contain a crew, they know how to do that. And in most of the time in D.C., when there are large protests, because D.C. absorbs protests in the millions, they have vans and buses ready to take people to jail. They have, you know, all of those things. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. that this is this just speaks to the complicity of of much of law enforcement at the very top to um to you know in terms of what they thought was going to happen or not happen but they were not ready in the ways that they have always been ready for for protests that especially that that they don't agree with so I think that's an important an important piece and I I do think even though it's like a part of me is like yes I'm about I'm an abolitionist. I'm about that restorative justice. And I'm about that this should be investigated. These folks should be exposed. Um, you know, the way that, that these these many congressmen and senators have come um, after our movements for non, but mostly nonviolent protests, uh, they should be held accountable. They should be held accountable around their their participation in this, and, and they should be you know, charged just like like anybody else who who has done this. But I think what we'll see probably more likely is um, you know more evidence of the hypocrisy, <laughs> you know, of all of this, and how um, you know white supremacy aligns and protects itself. Uh, I think that's that's what we'll probably see. But it would be good good to see that. I think the other thing too that we have to hold on to is that. Um, the the event itself is just one episode of what should be investigated, and and folks should be you know and, and we should be looking at accountability in a much you know sort of larger and longer trajectory. So there's been a really important work around what's the role of social media. Twitter shut down Trump's account now, right? But you know what's where's the the place in which we're looking at um, you know monitoring and 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 protecting uh, people and looking at the ways in which people are abusing so-called free speech, who gets access to free speech, who does not, who, what's considered hate speech? Because there are folks who are getting sh- their Facebook accounts shut down for hate speech. That is basically like I love black people, right? Because the algorithms but you know, but, are racist. 
but Connie, you know, there is a, 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 a awesome God because He put you in my life to keep me to 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 tamper me down because I have fantasies, and Doctor Doctor Taylor can help me out too because I have fantasies that I mean, I I worked in a federal building for over twenty. Two years, and any time anything happened, you knew that the parking garage underneath the building was going to be locked down. You knew right. that. I mean, I mean, I, I told a story last week on this show that uh, there was a demonstration by five old, mostly black people, in front of the federal building in Boston. And they had all the federal cops out there. They had the, the lights going on the truck, uh, the, the the cars in front of the building. They had blocked off uh, access to two areas in the building for five little black people. And they're calling me and saying we've got a problem, and they want to see you. Uh, and 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 I came downstairs and I said, would you all just friggin' stand down? Jesus Christ, what? <laughs> you know, yes. let these people come up, come come. I, they wouldn't even let them in the building because they had signs. So I didn't understand, Doctor Taylor. Maybe you can help me out because well, my fantasy mean, is that the FBI picks up Bill Barr, Mike Flynn, Steve Bannon. Um, that Hawking guy, Hawk, Hockley guy, um, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, uh, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, pick them all up and detain them yeah. for for an investigation. Well, I think but, one of the things the country the country's been able to see is just the vulgar double standard of reaction. <laughs> like everyone has seen Ferguson, everyone saw. The reconnaissance vehicles, uh, the helicopters, the special weapons. Up in Portland, they used some kind of an invisible wall. I think they tried to do it in Washington, D.C. Uh, when Trump had the Bible upside down, they used some sort of invisible technology uh, to, to prevent people from advancing that they, they, they tested uh, at, that, at that march um, as, you know, um, you know, that was nonviolent. Um, and you see on and on that there's this sort of, um, double standard reaction, and I think it reflects reality of everyday experience of people who are poor, who are you know black people in communities that are that are working class and poor, Latino communities that are working class and poor, and the reservations, right? Where you know where you see this sort of um, two-ness, what Andrew Hacker in his research called uh, in his book, um, uh, you know, I think he called it two Americas, you know. Um, separate, hostile, and, and, uh, and unequal. And he documents a lot of data that demonstrates the, the duality of the American system. And it's always, unfortunately, you know, not, in, in places. It's, it's been that way quite, quite often. And we see it at, at every stage of law enforcement from the, from, the, from the policing itself, meaning where they police, to arresting, to charging, to the level of sentencing, to what judges sentence us to. So every experience black people have and poor people have with the American criminal justice system is disproportionate and uh, at every stage, from, the, from, from where they police and who they surveil 
and what they surveil and what they police to how it plays out in the, in the system. So by the time we get to the police um, overreact to black movement and brown people movement and poor people movement and student movement, but underreact um, and are even actually complicit and on the side of the of the insurrection in this particular case, um, you know, it, it just it just goes to show. I think it was so important that you let in. This, sex, this segment with Martin Luther King. King, you know, was very verbose, and he said he, he took too long to say some things, uh, and you know, but he, but he, he, he very clearly makes the point when he talks about this bottomless vitality, when he talks about what we did in slavery, how long we've been here. We were here before the American Revolution. We were here before the Declaration of Independence. We were here before the Constitution. You know, he, he was saying we have a bottomless vitality, and he said, slave, he said, he said, if slavery can't stop us, he, he, he said it. And and I listen, and yeah. I'm like, that's what I that's what I say. That that if we learn the lessons of our ancestors and of our previous movements and bring them forward, bring them forward into the modern movements, then you have a depth of of information of of in, experience. But you also, I think, gain a sense that um, of confidence. See, I think it's a mistake mm-hmm. that we say the Thirteenth Amendment is directly connected to mass incarceration because it then denies Frederick Douglass, uh, Sojourner Truth, and Harriet Tubman their victory. Black people beat slavery, not Abraham Lincoln, not the Civil War, black people. And, and the problem is, just like hidden figures, just like Henrietta Locke, they don't tell us the truth. We don't know the truth of the Civil War. The, 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 the Confederacy in the South, they preserved their history, right? We have allowed ours to just linger and to be ghettoized as the civil rights movement, I have a dream, Rosa Parks in the backseat of the bus, and don't even tie that to the deeper movement that they were the children of. King was a child when Rosa Parks was arrested in 1944 investigating the rape of, of, of Reese Taylor in Abbeville, uh, Alabama. In 1944, she got kicked off the bus. I'll say it again. In 1944, Rosa Parks got kicked off the bus. Why was she upset in 1955, December? Because Emmett Till had been killed August 28, 1955. The beginning of the black movement, the modern movement, is Emmett Till, not Rosa Parks. So they were all the children of the modern black movement. And if we bring that technology forward, then we can defeat slave racism. See, I think if we don't acknowledge that we beat that we as a people, not that slavery ended, but that we won. This is what Phenom was trying to tell us in his work, uh, the, the you know the the, um, the wretched of the earth. You can't. The, the colonizer must be killed by the by by the by the by the native in order for the native to ever be free. The colonizer can't simply say you are free because then you are not free because he's determined the conditions of your freedom. So I think we need to recover our history and acknowledge, like the 1619 Project tried to, that we've always been the people committed to democracy in America. That when they said democracy. It also incorporated racism, Jim Crow, and every other kind of ism that you could think of. And if we don't acknowledge our victories, then we'll keep on thinking we're not winning. We'll keep thinking we're at the bottom of the spiral when we're at the top of it. We'll think we're at the bottom of the stairs when we're at the top of it. So, so for me, I think we have to look at King, look at the movement, and recognize that we've had movements, as I said earlier, with great success. Under, under Booker Washington, black America had 60,000 businesses. Under, under Booker. And then they had a reconstruction movement. We had a successful political movement that lasted for 12 years with black senators, with black senators in Mississippi, Hiram, 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 um, uh, Hiram, um, okay. uh, 
thank you. Well, and then, and, mm-hmm. you know, so, so we've had all of this, and I think the problem is we keep cutting ourselves off from our own history and our victories, or we reinterpret them in a way that don't empower us. So we see our freedom in slavery in Abraham Lincoln's beard. But let, if you read let, let Du Bois' Black, Black Reconstruction, Du Bois explains that 180,000 men took up guns and killed white men, and there was a revolution within the Civil War, and then he explains that, that 350,000 black men and women and children walked off the plantations and, and did a labor strike, and he calls it a general strike. So 500,000 black people cooperate and kill slavery, and we give, it cre- give credit to Abraham Lincoln, and the problem is when we rise up in Black Lives Matter, we think we're the new revolution and ignore the fact that, um, that we beat slavery. If you can beat slavery, then you can beat convict leasing. Then you beat convict leasing, you beat, Jim, you beat, you beat um, sharecropping. Then you beat, um, you beat peonage. Then you beat Jim Crow. And if you don't understand as a people that we did this, these, the, the Underground Railroad was ours. It was not white liberals who were on our side. Nobody identified as an abolitionist, abolitionist publicly. Black people created the Underground Railroad. So we don't even acknowledge that the Underground Railroad was black ingenuity, black intelligence, black connections, like the Green Book in the modern period. We had all of these mechanisms amongst ourselves as a people to survive the situation. And it's why, Ms. Graham, today they are tearing down their own institutions and we dancing in the streets of Atlanta blue. That, 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 that's the death of our experience as a people. We've been through so much hell here in America that they put us through, that they formed a racist culture around us, and now that this whole country is in trouble with COVID, with economic distress, with, with social strife, they don't have the culture to tap except racist culture. And that's what you see them uh, demonstrating where we, we had Juneteenth this past June, like we ain't never had Juneteenth in, in my lifetime. I don't know about y'all, but I ain't never seen Juneteenth like it was this past June. National, even Trump a lesson. You know what I'm saying? And that's the power of black culture. And I've tried to say on your show and others that I've learned recently by watching all of this, I've come to the conclusion that black culture is more powerful than white supremacy, that black culture is more powerful than racism. And that's why we still standing. That's why we dancing and celebrating victory in Atlanta, and they tearing down the very institutions of this country. Makani, let me ask you, if in your work, in building strategies for black empowerment, have we incorporated enough of the spirit and the lessons of black liberation that Dr. Taylor just outlined? Yeah, I, I actually, yeah, my experience has been that, you know, in fact, there I, I have participated and supported reading groups to read Du Bois. Um, you know, black reconstruction. You know, I people are very interested in reconstruction as as a as a touch point. I think you know. So I, I think that's important to say that I I feel like this is a generation of activists that are more grounded analytically, historically than I've seen in a while. And I, I have to say, I. I, as when I was coming up, I was very fortunate. I had a mother who was very much into history. I was surrounded by folks. I grew up in Harlem, mm. which is a great place to be. Nice, you know, black, you know, um, nice. especially back in the day. So I feel like, um, like there is that, and 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 I and I, I want to agree with Dr. Taylor that 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 we do come from this, and that you know, part of the challenge is is that 
we we tend to blame ourselves for so many things, including not knowing our history. When it's a, it's real, it's a real obstacle course, right? Right. right. And usually, the re, the how people learn their history is somebody invited them, gave them a book. It's not yep. like they went to school, even though we pay our taxes. Um, you know, so it's like all these things. One of the things I also wanted to bring up, and I, I would be remiss if I did not call the name of Miriam Carey, um, who was yes. the black woman who was shot to death um, mm-hmm. by the Capitol Police. Um, you know, and as somebody who also has lived in D.C. for many years, I, of course I live in Jackson now, who I have, you know, a child who works in the federal government, um, and, you know, and, and, and concerned about, you know, and, and, and if you know anything about D.C., you know that black people in many ways run so much of the government, you know, at least from a procedural way. So I worry about their safety. That that building, the Capitol building, is a place where lots of, you know, black food workers, black janitors, black, there's like a lot of black people who work there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I and I want them to be safe. Um, and, you know, so I, 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 wanna, I felt like I needed to I'm glad, acknowledge that. I'm, I'm glad that. you brought that up. And the uh, the other part of it is that we don't understand the the um, collective economic strength of the federal workforce. That it really it is, it has contains made a the I largest mean, yes. middle. Yes, it it, conti- it, it contains is, it has, the largest. And in fact, that's the truth for the whole country. Um, mm-hmm. That the federal workforce. In fact, a shout out to my sister Clayola. Uh, Brown, who um, is the head of um, a Philip Randolph Institute, and you know, and one of the things they they pointed out and organized around was the fact that a lot of the focus on cutting the budgets, both state, federal, and city, was really mm-hmm. about displacing black workers. So sure. I think yeah. that's important. Yeah. So let me you just know, say this. I, I want to answer your sh- question. Yeah. Let me let me shout I'm sorry, out. Sorry. Go to- ahead. Marsha Coleman, Dr. Marsha Coleman yes. Obadiah, uh, yes. who was the leadership in the No Fear um, <clears throat> um, movement in within the federal uh, government workforce. That's right. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, for years, Absolutely. even especially when Barack Obama was elected. Uh, I had loads and lots of consult and conferences with my staff, my federal staff, about taking safety precautions in how they did their work as they did field work with um, uh, local governments and state governments and especially around um, organizations uh, in in cities and towns that had to do with affordable housing and fair housing um, activities. But uh, I just wanted to do that shout-out. Makani. No, I mean, that totally, that totally, yeah, I am here. No, it totally makes sense, and absolutely. I mean, there's so many layers to this, obviously, but I will I will say that, um you know, it's a common lament that I don't think is true, as I've said probably a few times tonight, that um, 
that this is mostly an ahistorical movement. Yeah, there are some folks walking around with dumb T-shirts that say, I'm not my ancestors right. Right. and stuff like that. But right. you know what? I feel like they're the minority, right. right, especially in terms of the leadership. And I, I, do, I do find, and I'm glad more people are writing books, more people are talking about this movement on their, you know, from their own voices in their own terms, so people can see for themselves what folks have to say. So I don't want to speak for anybody, but I know in my own experience um, that there's a lot of reading going on. There's a lot of writing going on. You know, there are a lot of folks, even folks who are not necessarily college educated, and, you know, and there there's a lot of organic intellectuals, as, as folks mm-hmm. used to call it back mm-hmm. in the day, um, that are involved in this movement that are helping to think about. I think about like a Mary Hooks, who mm-hmm. um, is the brainchild, you know, behind the the you know Mama Bailout, um, among other things, and also right. the person who um, and 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 the other thing. I just, so I want to. So one, I want to acknowledge that the other thing, which is uh, just going back to something earlier, just to mention that there's a documentary called Birth of a Movement, which actually details the organizing and the protests around, the black protests around the film Birth of a Nation. So okay. If anyone's interested in going down that rabbit hole a little bit, I think it's on many of the streaming platforms, but it's definitely worth watching, and it really aligns with what Dr. Taylor was saying. We have all of this amazing history of hard work and victory. I mean, during Reconstruction, Mississippi had the most progressive constitution in the nation Mm. um and so it's good to know it's good to know these things and i know i personally draw my inspiration from from reconstruction from the vision of you know the the folks who like had these amazing stories and 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 these black communities that that lived in freedom and and in cooperative like Mount Bayou, Mississippi. Right. We have like a whole history. My yeah. favorite is Blackdom, you know, out of uh, New Mexico. Like we have this history of of black freedom, of black liberation, of black success, of black economic power, just so much. And that um, and that we ha- we have to reclaim it, but not only reclaim it personally, not only teach it in small circles like we do, but also fight for the space in the public schools, in the curriculum, mm. you know, to to make to use our tax dollars. If we're going to pay taxes for our children to be educated, then we need to demand that that education re- be something that are that actually uplift. And, and prepare our children to be fully operational human beings and, 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 and support and, and reinforce their humanity. And I know there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to deal with the government or whatever, but it's like most of our kids are there. And, and that is a fight that we have to make because that is the only way that we are going to, by, by recreating these institutions and contesting what gets taught, is going to be the only way most of us are going to know what happened. You know, fighting for our museums, fighting for the institutionalizing of our stories, that's how, that's how it's going to happen. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is this sister named, uh, this sister uh, who was a Delta, uh, when I was in high school, <clears throat> headed, headed to prison. I was, you know, on my way to a, a very negative life. She gave me the book, um, There is a River, 
by Vincent Harding. And yes. I read that book. Mm-hmm. I read that book, and then I read Malcolm X's autobiography, or, or vice versa. But that changed me. When I saw the depth, you know, he made the analogy, Vincent Harding, in that book, that the black experience is like a deep, deep, deep river. Right from the from the middle passage, he went all the way up to the re, uh, to the beginning of Reconstruction and stopped. He planned on finishing the book and going to a second century from Reconstruction to the modern movement where he helped King and where he wrote, for example, the Beyond Beyond Vietnam speech. Vincent Harding was at, in Atlanta for many years and taught at Spelman uh, Spelman College, and is a legend. He, he's gone unfortunately, but that book. His daughter um, is an our common ground voice. Is she? Rachel. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful, you know, because um, that's, I, I think that's what we're talking about here is, you know, trying to get, if the schools aren't going to educate, and I agree we have to get in and fight, you know, in those spaces, but as Sister McConney mentioned earlier, you know, someone, you know, gave her a book or, or, or I, mentioned, I heard her mention, you know, someone getting a book and how that changes, you know, how that can change. And, and one book changed my life. You know, it, 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 it helped me see that I belong to something so much deeper than the streets, and it pulled me away from it completely. And, and I'm mm-hmm. mentioning it now in my 50s, what was given to me in my teens as important to my change in life and looking forward. And I tell my kids, I tell my students all the time, I've been teaching for 20 years at the university level, I tell my students all the time, what I know, I basically have had to learn myself. My books in this house are, you know, my, like every professor, like a lot of readers, my house is full of books everywhere, all over the floor. But, but it's because I've had to educate me. I've had to educate me. I got a Ph.D., you know, completing their obstacles that they put before you. But I really educated myself about black people. I, nobody taught me about Garvey or, or Queen Audley Mother Moore. I had to learn about David Walker and the appeal. Nobody taught me that. You know, and so I think we have to try to find ways of, in this moment, on whatever, I think we have to understand there are so many fronts, F-R-O-N-T-S, so many fronts that we have to address, that we need all hands on deck in every area, whether it's economic, health, education, organizing, politics, economics, the full, uh, you know, panoply of our community's needs. Um, and the beauty is, that, uh, you know, violence prevention, right, violence intervention. There are so many women, especially in black communities in Detroit, uh, Ms. Barf- uh, Chicago, Ms. Barfield, uh, Clementine Barfield, who had two sons killed. Um, here in San Francisco, there are a number of black women who organize and are the main leaders in the community organizing around violence intervention and, and prevention. When, in fact, in Richmond, California, black people were living in tents out in the streets to try to stop the violence about 10 years ago, and then the Occupy movement happened, and they started using the same tactics. And then once these white folks started feeling good about the Occupy movement, they started saying, where are the black people? And black folk were like, uh, hello, we, we were out here five years ago trying to stop violence in our communities, you know. And so I just think we as a people have got to tap into the depth of our culture. That's our salvation right now. As a, I'm not talking religion. I'm talking about social salvation. That's our salvation right now, I think. I think Juneteenth taught me something. When I saw this emotional, spiritual culture just wake up and, and nobody let it, but it just had so much power over everybody at that moment where the government said, let's make it a national holiday. And I'm like, no, don't do that because y'all are ruined it. Like, you know, like you corrupt King. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, there was this deep pouring out of, of, of the black cultural expression.
question. And what Harold Cruz tried to educate black people around in his book, The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual and, and uh, Rebellion versus Revolution, his other book, is that our culture is our, our, our atom bomb. Our culture is our nuclear weapon in America as a people. And as long as we continue to fortify, nurture, develop, um, you know, produce, and then also try to get control and ownership of, of, of our technologies, uh, then we'll be on the right path uh, toward, I think, uh, becoming more of a, a well-rounded, our communities will be more well-rounded. And again, finally, I think the tactic, uh, I'm, I'm you know, so glad um, you have someone who does you know, strategy, because I, I think that's what we need. We need people to educate us on the how. We know the what we want. We want justice. We don't know how to implement it at the local level. So I have a dream doesn't really get to the local. Black power doesn't get to the local. And, and, and that's what we, we don't need more giant proclamations. We need local folk on the front lines like in Jackson, Mississippi, right, and, and, and in Newark, New Jersey, and, and in Oakland, California, local people who are not well-known except at the local level on the front lines you know, trying to bring people together to, 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 to produce change. Du Bois understood the black community is not a national community. We are, you know, populated throughout the country. And, and that gives us an advantage of developing our communities at the local level um, and demanding from the, the Biden campaign, the Biden um, administration and Harris administration, a, a urban development program. That is, that is so critical and one of the things that has been entirely troubling to me over the last six or seven years is how you begin to train and educate um, activists about how government works. I've been real concerned that we have so much focus on electoral politics right. that we forget about policy politics and that is through referendum and when right. you run a referendum to implement or change policy one of the things that you have to do and what you are doing is teaching a community how to take control over its government through its own regulation because wasn't Stacey Abrams local before she became national, right? Like, like Stacey Abrams to me. She was, she and, was a state she, legislator. Right. She's so important because I think she demonstrates what's possible, not just in politics, but in all those areas I mentioned that, have our, that are needed in our community from her generation and younger people. I, I think if they can see what she's done, not just in terms of electoral politics, but the idea that she looked at the landscape and said, we keep losing, but we got – the numbers in our favor. How do we win with the you know? How do we change yeah. that? And then she figured out how do you tap certain community sectors or certain you know. I mean, this may not, I don't want to be disrespectful, but they they were in strip clubs. They were in they were in the the, the trap parties. You know, in the in the mm -hmm. underground places. You know, people would and that's how they turned Georgia blue. They weren't self righteous and they didn't eliminate anybody. They didn't say if you if you're a stripper you can't yep. vote. They said if you're a stripper get yourself off the pole and come and vote. And and that's no, that, that to is, me is black spirituality. That's who we really are as a people. And that to me is what America needs. America needs to stop hating us and look at us and learn from us. Well, I think that's totally true. I, I also think it would be it's important to acknowledge the the whole crew of people in Georgia because, um, you know, uh, um, 
polls, you know, polls to the, you know, to the polls. Right, right. But, 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 but uh, polls, something to uh, the polls. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like, and, and it was like a the whole black set vote, of the folks. Black voters move, the Black Voters Movement, or Black, vote, black well, Voters Matter, yeah, uh, Latasha no, Brown, Latasha Brown. Voters matter. No, right. it was not Latasha Brown, even though Latasha Brown did a lot of stuff. You know, of course, Stacey Abrams did a lot of stuff. But one of the things that it's sometimes hard for us to hold, because we are so used to this Western framework of stories as having a leader, when right. we're collective people. And right. so, you know, I, yeah. I, you know, and there's so many people to shout out. But you know, I, I, Mary Hook's organization—well, not just Mary Hook. It's not Mary Hook's organization. Mary Hook's was involved in. Um, Song and some of the other folks who like were organizing strippers and you know folks like that. You uh-huh. know Helen Butler who had been and um, you know and just a whole set of folks who've been organizing for decades who've mentored right. you know Stacey mm-hmm. Abrams. So I want right. to so I want to like acknowledge that, but also I want to just say that that um, you know it's it's again it's an easy thing to fall into based on what we can see what's going on, right? Um, and that, you know, and, and, and for us to kind of like, it's a stretch. It's, it's, a, it's a new set of muscles for us to be able to tell these collective stories. I'm, you know, I, tr- I spend a lot of my work going around the country, especially before the pandemic. Now I do it all by Zoom. Um, helping people think about how, right? That's, that's my work. I'd always say how is the revolutionary question. Okay. And, um, and so, like, in the, in the work, when I work with folks, you know, we do a lot of, like, community-based policy work, helping people understand it. And here in Jackson, where I live, we have, you know, people's assemblies um, that are, are actually involved. In, and we're not the only place to have it. They're all over the place. They're in Florida. They're yeah. in, you know, they're in all kinds yeah. of parts of the country. But it is a, it is a thing that we've been using in this country How's for, like, 50 years. Yeah, so what it is is people come together, they're organ, you know, organized, they, um, they vote on things like participatory, like the budget. They come up with ideas for policy. We talk about issues from their perspective. So, uh, for example, here at Jackson, we had a People's Assembly on Crime and Safety, and people who were returning residents came up with a proposal for job creation for folks who were coming out that ended up being adopted um, as a private-public partnership with the city and uh, ceasefire. And so mm-hmm. because the best ideas come from the people who live the experience. Absolutely. And so, I, Absolutely. so I think it's, I just want to just say very quickly that so I want to acknowledge these movements that are really trying to build up policy from the bottom up. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, one of the things that we um, I note that we forget is that you have to take, activism to where people live. You have to look at the patterns in which they survive and thrive, and if you don't understand where that map, if you can't draw that map, then your activism is going to falter. Um, I, 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 I think that uh, Makani Themba and her work, Dr. James Taylor in his knowledge. I mean, we have the resources to continue to build the change that we need. 
and I I I thank you both so much for for joining us tonight. And I am sorry, uh, I got distracted by your genius and forgot to ask people if they wanted to call in. <laughs> it is a call in. Oh no. <laughs> But thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Well, Makani, you've got to come back more. It's been way too long. And, um, you know, one of the things that we want to do at Our Common Ground is to, you know, I was involved for many, many years in what uh, we called in Boston the Freedom Academy, uh, which were essentially – for at the beginning, just grabbing kids off the corners and standing in front of the boys' girls club as they were coming out and catching their mm-hmm. parents to get them involved in black civic activism. And I am so proud. Ayanna Presley was, who is now the U.S. Congresswoman, is uh, was one of those people, one of those kids that we grabbed so long ago. We we caught wow. her at the Boys Girls Club, and um, Rachel Rollins, who is the Suffolk County DA. Uh, Suffolk County is the largest county in 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 Massachusetts, which includes Boston, and uh, she was one of those kids. Wow! So you know we, we've got uh, uh, we've got to do more in terms of using maximizing the resources. And, Dr. Taylor, I definitely, I've been meaning to call you, and I'm going to say it publicly, uh, to ask you to do a political history uh, uh, symposium here at Our Common Ground, and we're going to do that in 2021. Let's do it. That'll be fun. Um, I'd love it. You know, yeah, I think it would be uh, terrific. And, Makani, you've got to come back because of all the people I know, Makani Thumba, you know just what the pulse is in terms of organizing and maximizing resources in our community. And to both of you, I am so grateful uh, for your support, for having you with us tonight at our common ground and um you'll be hearing from me unfortunately we've got to bring this conversation for this saturday to a close thank you both so very much and for thank those you. of you who thank are you listening both. Take care. i thank want you. everybody to sit still because we are going to be honoring um dr taylor already dropped uh, we're going to be honoring uh, and acknowledging the work as we go out tonight of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Um, there are many in this country, and that includes some of us, who want to minimize the significance of his life and legacy and want to revise to their own purpose uh, who he was and what he stood for. And at our common ground, because we honor and respect black truth, we know who he was. We know what he did. And his transformative life, in the time that he was here, 
on our behalf changed everything. I want to ask you to trust your struggle. And that is what you can pass on to your family and friends. Thank you so much for being with us. And we'll see you next Saturday with Jennifer Taub, the author of Big Dirty Money. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you for joining us tonight at Our Common Ground. Join us each Saturday night, 10 p.m., transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you, reminding you to trust your stories.